that process of following closer, closer, of drawing ever nearer to God as we walk through our days, as we become more and more like Christ as we follow Him, that is discipleship. A fancy word to describe that that thing. And today we celebrate two milestones just within the life of our church with regard to discipleship. One is Today is the end of our first year of Bible reading plans. Uh, so that meant that this morning I completed my Bible in a year plan, uh, which was great. Uh, we have new plans that start tomorrow. So please pick them up in the back of the sanctuary. Uh, there are three plans as there were before. Uh, they're a little bit different plans though. Uh, one plan will take you through the entire New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs between now and next September 30th. Uh, one will work you through the Bible over the course of two years, and then there is a chronological reading of the entire Bible over the course of the next year. So choose your plans. Many of you participated in the reading plans this past year and have found them to be a huge blessing in your own personal discipleship and growth. I know I enjoyed having that sort of daily accountability, uh, and I would also invite you, as you know people who are using the same plan you are, talk about the things you read this week. Talk about what you encountered and what you had questions about. And, and remember, too, if there's areas in your reading that you have questions about, right, our offices are open. In particular, Neil and I just love those questions about the Bible. So stop in anytime and try and stump us. But you have to have read it first. Discipleship is so critical to the life of Christ. Once we accept Christ, we are called to follow him. We are called to really be disciples, trying to follow him and become more and more like him through the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. But it is worth noting that discipleship isn't free. It isn't easy. Sometimes it comes with a tremendous cost. In fact, The Cost of Discipleship is a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer was a brilliant young German theologian, a rising academic star, when the course of his life was radically altered by the rise of Adolf Hitler. When the majority of German Christian leaders were supporting the Nazi party and the agenda of the Nazi party, Bonhoeffer, from the earliest days, spoke against its evil. He recognized it for what it was, anti Gospel, anti-Bible, anti-Christ. In 1933, just two days after the installation of Adolf Hitler as Chancellor of Germany, Bonhoeffer was condemning Hitler on the radio, warning the German people not to idolize and, and obey the Fuhrer. As the German church, to its shame, fell into line with Nazism, Bonhoeffer and others established what was called the Confessing Church which is a movement that maintained Christ as the head of the church rather than Adolf Hitler. And despite numerous opportunities to, to flee the country, to safely study and work abroad, Bonhoeffer ultimately was convinced he needed to stay and work in Germany to try and save the authentic church of Jesus Christ. He would go on to lead an underground seminary, and when that was shut down, he was then conducting seminary on the run, going throughout the country to encourage and equip confessing pastors throughout the nation of Germany. Ultimately, he would be arrested in April 1943 and executed two years later. His courageous loyalty to God and the true church of Jesus Christ, instead of falling into a 
politicized state church is what cost him his freedom and his life, and for him, that was the ultimate cost of discipleship. Today, we continue our series that is exploring how we should properly live as disciples of Jesus Christ in a world that I think we would all agree is increasingly strange, partisan, divided, hostile, difficult to process, difficult to find our footing, difficult to find our voice. And we have been working this series looking at these issues of how a follower of Jesus Christ should faithfully live in a world as weird as ours through the lens of the events of the book of Daniel. And I would say that Bonhoeffer's willingness to live for God above all else, a willingness to lay his life down for his for his faithfulness to Christ, provides for us a modern-day example of principles that we will see exemplified in Daniel chapter 3. Now, once again, I will not read all of Daniel 3 because it is quite long and we would use up all of our time and then you'd be leaving before I got to the teaching points. But I will, however, address the main points of this narrative. I will read key verses, but I really want to encourage you, particularly as a family, right? If you have kids, take time this afternoon as a family. If you don't have kids, take time individually and read Daniel 3 at home. Right, We think we know the story of Daniel 3 because we learned it a long time ago in Sunday school. There is a lot in this story, in the details of this story that speaks to us today, wherever we are in our journey. It is an incredible testament to courageous faith and to God's saving power. And the events of Daniel chapter 3 takes place sometime after chapter 2. We don't know how long it is between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. We suspect it has been some amount of time that is meaningful because we find at the beginning of chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has basically forgotten the key lesson from chapter 2. He has commissioned the construction of a golden statue 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. He sets it up on the plain of Dura outside Babylon. And then he orders all of the the provincial officials from throughout his empire to gather for the statue's dedication. And they were all commanded to fall down and worship the statue. And they were warned this way. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And that, we should understand, is like a forge. It's not a furnace like we think of for heating our house. It's a forge for working metal, possibly the one used to make the statue itself. And so when the music played, the biblical account says that all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue. All the people, except for three men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been born in Israel kidnapped in their youth and taken to Babylon where they were renamed and re-educated and forced to work for the government that had, in fact, kidnapped them. And because of their continued faith in God, they would not, did not, bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Now, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar himself didn't notice, I guess because there was such a large crowd. 
But other bureaucrats who were jealous of their position came to the king and ratted them out in verse 12. They say, there are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is not happy about this. And so he summons the men before him, and a nice guy that he is, he gave them a second chance. Here I will read to you the biblical narrative from verses 15 through 18. It says, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This question, by the way, is the key to properly interpreting this entire story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar does not like to be told no. And so he explodes in rage. He commands that the furnace be superheated. He says the three men need to be tied up, clothes and everything, and thrown in through the top of the furnace. The fire grows so hot that as the soldiers are led, are leading Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the, to the opening at the top of the furnace, the heat is so intense it actually kills the soldiers. And the three men tumble into the furnace. Now, verses 24 through 28 are the best part. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar then concludes the situation with his usual style. He promotes the three men, and then he decrees horrific death for anyone who would dare say anything bad about God. 
because he proclaims there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, this is a truly extraordinary story, and I have enjoyed studying it this week with fresh eyes, and that's where I do hope you will take time to to read it over in detail today. But for this morning, I want to focus on two overarching principles that we see within this narrative and apply them to our own Babylonian exile. And the first and most important is that our God is a God who saves. This is the most important and fundamental principle of this whole chapter. God saved Daniel's friends quite literally from fiery death. Verse 15 is what set up the whole point of the story, right? To make sure we get it. When Nebuchadnezzar asks, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This, of course, was answered for us in verses 24 and 25 as the three men were joined in the fiery furnace by the visible presence of God, which, as I read before, Nebuchadnezzar described this way, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Later, of course, Nebuchadnezzar would refer to this fourth individual as an angel of God, and Theologians have debated for centuries, was this the pre-incarnate Christ who is with them or just an angel? And I think the answer is, as I said before on some other topics in the book of Daniel, the answer is essentially irrelevant because if we were meant to know, God would have told us. The point is that God, whether it was in his son or through his messenger angel, was visibly present with the men in their fiery trial utterly, completely saving them. And then God uses Nebuchadnezzar to tell us the bottom line of the passage in verse 29. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Our God is a God who saves and rescues. Now, whenever we read the Old Testament, we always have to remember it is pointing us to Jesus Christ. He is the focus of all Scripture. And so the friend's salvation from fiery destruction is pointing us to the fundamental good news of the gospel, that God saves and rescues everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ because he is fundamentally a God who saves and rescues. Every single human being naturally faces eternal destruction. Every human being naturally faces fiery condemnation, because every single one of us does things that are bad, selfish, wicked, evil, immoral, unethical, or just plain cruel, literally from the day we're born. Right? You can tell from the, from the cutest little baby on up that we are born self-centered, and as we grow and mature, we can, we can try to be better, we can try to be good people, but we remain people who, despite our best efforts, slip up and hurt others or disgrace ourselves. Maybe it's angry words. Maybe it's manipulative behavior. Maybe it's outright abuse. Perhaps it's lying or cheating or stealing to get ahead. Maybe it's some kind of addiction or it's violence or immorality or obscenity. Whatever it is, the list goes on and on. But Romans 3.23 reminds us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions 
for this truth. There are no perfect people immune from this reality that every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's standard and expectation because He is truly perfect and truly holy and truly righteous and truly good and He calls us to be the same. And there are consequences to our sins, as Romans 6.23 reminds us, the wages of sin is death. This is a problem as people who naturally can't help but sin, right? That we automatically face an eternity of condemnation, separation from God, the fiery wrath of God who created us and loves us but cannot permit us sin to enter into His holy presence. But that's where the good news comes in because our God is a God who saves and rescues just as He saved and rescued Shadrach, Meshach, in Abednego. God loves each of us, and we also need to realize He loves each of the people in the many homes that surround this church. And so He provided a way to rescue us from His fiery wrath and that condemnation that we so richly deserve for our sinful actions. God bought our freedom, our freedom from death, from sin, from condemnation, a tremendous cost by sending His own Son, Jesus, into the world to live a perfect, sin-free, and holy life and to die a sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus gave His life so that all who put their faith in Him would be forgiven forever. All of our guilt erased. All of our shame washed clean. Romans 5, 8 and 9 proclaim, but God shows His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That saving, that salvation from God is a gift. A gift that is offered to each and every person, a gift that is offered to everyone around us, everyone we encounter in our daily lives is offered this gift. It's a gift we don't deserve. It's a gift we can't earn. It's a gift that when we're really just being honest with ourselves, the truth is we are actively trying every day to unearn it by our words and our thoughts and our actions and our failures to act when we should. And yet God offers it anyway. He offers that salvation anyway because He is a God who saves and rescues just as He did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And all anyone has to do to receive that gift is to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Romans 10, 9 and 10 promises, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Our God is a God who saves. And He saves all who put their faith in Him through Jesus Christ. And He commissions us as a people, as followers of His Son, to share that good news, that offer of a gift, with everyone that we come in contact with. But there's even more good news to this, and we see it played out in the events of Daniel chapter 3 because Scripture guarantees that as Christians, God is with us 
through the fiery trials of life. See, God never, ever, 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 never, let's be clear on that, promises Christians that our lives on earth will be easy or pleasant. And anyone who says otherwise is lying. He pretty much guarantees the opposite, that we're all going to go through seasons of suffering and pain and persecution. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. We will suffer. Somewhere in our lives, we will suffer. But we can rejoice amidst suffering. We can endure fiery trials because God's Spirit lives within all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, God assures us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So when we're suffering, when we're sick, when we're depressed, when we're disabled, when we're oppressed, when we're imprisoned, when we're broke, when we're persecuted, when we're hungry or afraid or anxious or lost or confused, we can be certain that Christ is with us, comforting us and strengthening us to endure these trials in a manner that glorifies God, just as God is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Romans 8, 35-39 celebrates the glorious truth of our life in Jesus Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is a God who saves and rescues. And that power to save and sustain us through every crisis and catastrophe and trial in life is incredibly important because of the second major principle we see revealed in Daniel 3. That we must live for God above all else, no matter the consequences. Now Daniel's friends took a brave stand for God above all other things, including their careers and their lives. In verses 15 through 18, they directly defied the order of the most powerful and temperamental man on earth. And they made it clear that while they had total confidence that God could save them, they had no guarantee He would save them. But it did not change their actions. They knew that to give in to Nebuchadnezzar's demand and to worship this golden statue would violate the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. 
And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faced with a terrible choice, and they knew the consequences either way. Right? On the one hand, they could offend Nebuchadnezzar and die painfully, or they could offend the living God of the universe. And they chose obedience to God. This needs to be the example we live by. In this crazy, confusing, wildly shifting, polarizing world in which we currently live, these men are examples of godly courage for every Christian, that we must choose obedience to God above all else, no matter what it costs, in social capital, in friendships, in professional relationships, in physical sacrifice and suffering. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must live for God above all political and social pressures in our culture, just like Bonhoeffer did, right? It would have been easy to go along with the mainstream church of Germany. He stood for God and Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2 commands us to live lives totally committed to God, in which every bit of our lives are offered up to him for his glory. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Living sacrifices. All in. All the time. Continuous commitment to God above all other things, no matter the cost or consequences. That, Paul says, is true worship. We must commit to obeying and glorifying God no matter what, and that is a commitment that needs to take priority over our politics, right? our, our social status, our employment prospects. We need to ask God for the focus and the courage and the determination of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Never, ever compromise God or your Christian witness for anything in this life, and especially not influence, acceptance, power, or status. It is not worth it. Some years ago, I endured a two-year-long fiery trial at work. An abusive, manic, manipulative, and sociopathic government manager who loved to sow conflict, to play people off one another, to fire people for entertainment, and to do whatever she could to harm, hurt, stress, or intimidate all those under her authority. As the leader of the largest and most prominent team, it was very difficult to figure out how to navigate this situation. And as I struggled through it, and as I prayed through it, God reminded me of this truth, that my integrity was the only thing that could not be taken away in that work environment. But I could give it up any time I chose. With that assurance, I knew what had to be done. So for several weeks, because I'd been there a long time and accumulated a lot of stuff, I would go in early to work before my team got in so that I could work on cleaning out old papers and removing personal possessions, bringing things home bit by bit without the rest of the team knowing so they wouldn't panic and thinking I was leaving them. But I did it so that any moment I was prepared that I could maintain my integrity 
and be walked out of the building on no notice for doing the right thing. And that is not to applaud me, but that is to say we must be willing to make these choices, to stand for the things that cannot be taken away in life, our faith in Christ, our Christian witness, our personal integrity. Now, fortunately, in my case, she was relieved of duty before I was. But the lesson remains. Live for God above all else, above all those external pressures that tempt us to compromise our faithful walk in Jesus Christ. But I will submit that right now we don't have that many things that put us into those kinds of situations. They exist, absolutely. I think they will be increasing in this culture in which we live. We see it now as churches struggle to determine how best to obey Christ in a God-honoring way, particularly in our political environment today. But I will submit that the subtler temptation for those of us as Christians, that we need to resist are those that we just enjoy in our relatively comfortable, if somewhat overstressed, Northern Virginia existence. What I'm speaking here of those internal pressures that we have to, to put our desires, our hopes, our and dreams, our ambitions, our habits and hobbies above God. You see, we also have to choose to live for God above all of our personal preferences and desires. And this week, I really, really want us to, each of us, chew over some questions. Questions like, are we really prioritizing God over everything else in our lives? Right? Are we prioritizing God over our careers? Over our incomes? Our bank balances? Our retirements? our vacations, our work, our leisure, our health, our fitness, our appearance, our entertainments, our hobbies, our relationships. And, in, and for those of us who have kids, right, in Northern Virginia, are we putting God above our kids' activities, above our dreams and ambitions for our children? The questions I want us to think about are whether God is really getting the very best of our time and our talent and our treasure, or is he simply getting the leftover scraps of our time and our energy? All too often we say we love God, and we do, we, and I'm sure we do, and we come on Sunday morning and we get charged up, but then the rest of the week, if you really look at how we use our time, our talent, our treasure, our energy, what does it really say about where we put God? Right, far too many Christians today seem to prioritize God below just about everything else. Right, how many of us would functionally say, right, we wouldn't verbally say it, but functionally say that the salvation and discipleship of our children is less important than their involvement in a sports league? How many of us are more diligent about making sure our kids get to practice than getting here on Wednesday night or Sunday morning? Whether they get to a routine game rather than worshiping God. And I can extend it, right? This isn't just make parents feel bad. Fill in your own blank of the things that dominate the time in your life. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Right? That means to put our choices, our desires, even our dreams, our preferences, our tastes beneath him 
and to take up our cross as a living sacrifice every single day, not just some Sunday mornings when we're in town, don't have other activities, and aren't too tired. Luke 9, 23-25 says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it profit our children if they gain a D1 scholarship and lose or forfeit themselves? As Christ followers, we are called to take up our cross daily to deny ourselves, to make sacrifices so that God is the highest priority in our lives. Even if the kids complain, even if it means we've got to get up earlier than we like on a Sunday, even if it makes us less popular at work, even if our, our kids miss out on travel soccer, this is the call to genuine, costly discipleship. Truly, truly following and becoming like Jesus. And it looks very different from what most of us in America have practiced for a long time. But this is what transforms our lives and the world around us. More importantly, this is what Jesus invites us, calls us to do, to live for him above all else. And so I urge you to reflect on your priorities in coming days. I invite you to make the commitment that so long as you live in exile here on earth, that you will choose to live for God above all other things, prepared for any and all consequences of that decision, and confident that God is with you every step of the way. And won't you please join me in prayer?